Coker, Horton, and Bell in the Mississippi Healthcare Alliance for underwriting MPB programs. Your company can be an underwriter too. Find out more. Go to mpbonline.org slash underwriting to find out how. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, March 5th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a bill is moving ahead in the legislature that would terminate the parental rights of rapists. All this does is allow the Chancery Court to terminate the parental rights of the rapist. And I think that most everybody would agree that, that that's a pretty good idea. Then a new report shows how much coal is contaminating Mississippi groundwater. We'll learn more. And after a Mississippi StoryCorps, find out why the IRS is warning Mississippians to beware of scammers. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. that would end the parental rights of a convicted rapist is awaiting action in the Mississippi Senate. House Bill 130 would allow chancery courts to take away the parental rights of rapists when the rape results in conceiving a child. Lawmakers say these incidents have come up and they want to protect mothers. House Republican Donnie Scroggins of Ellis Scoggins of Ellisville is one of the bill's authors. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier more about the measure. Well, I think that there's an issue or a potential issue for someone that that commits the act of rape and the girl becomes pregnant and after that person gets convicted they go to jail they do the time they get out they may want to have uh, the ability to see that child or have some parental involvement in that child and right now that's a possibility that they could have parental involvement have you been contacted by constituents about this issue I have been contacted, but it's more from a law enforcement personnel uh, personnel view. Um, one of the investigators with the Jones County Sheriff's Department ran into similar issues last year, and that's why we actually drafted the bill last year, um, that there was a person that was convicted of rape, gone to prison, did their time at Parchment, gotten out, and then wanted to actually be a um, parent to the child. And it, um, it was not a good situation that he wanted to get back involved in the, the mother's life. And, and she had since then moved on, gotten married, and, and developed her own family. And um, so this was just going to make it a little bit easier to get that convicted rapist out of the picture. Representative Donnie Scoggins. House Democrat David Beria of Bay St. Louis is also one of the bill's authors. He says the measure requires the rapist provide for the child. As you can imagine, uh, you know, when a person's a victim of a rape, uh, it's likely the last thing that they want to do uh, to, first of all, to have the child, although persons can make that choice under our existing law, but uh, secondarily to have to deal with the rapist, the the assailant who's been convicted of that rape, and as a co-equal parent. So uh, this law fixes that problem. But the victim would have to be willing to go to court to prove that they were raped and go through that process, right? Well, the, the victim doesn't have to prove that there was a rape. The state has the responsibility of proving that there's a rape. It's just, it doesn't change rape law. It simply provides a mechanism so when there's evidence that a child has been conceived of rape, then there's an automatic system to take that evidence before a chancery judge and allow the chancellor 
to uh, terminate the parental rights of that person convicted of rape. So if it turns out that parent has some assets, could the child get those assets of the terminated parent? The parental rights would be terminated. So the, the right to inherit from the parent through the child and vice versa would be eliminated under those circumstances. If you have someone who is of some means that you would want to hold them accountable for what they've done financially and have them pay some support. Well, no, child support. Child support is allowable under this law. So let me be clear. The chancellor can award child support. The, the, the rapist who parented a child, conceived a child through rape, would still be responsible for paying child support, okay? Uh, rights of inheritance are different. And then, of course, accountability. You, you know, if there's uh, accountability through a civil action for assault and battery and, and the, anything else that, uh, you know, lawyers could come up with to pursue a claim against somebody who, who has committed a rape and who has assets, those rights are still available as well. All this does is allow the Chancery Court to terminate the parental rights of the rapist. And I think that most everybody would agree that, that that's a pretty good idea. Representative David Barria with MPB's Desiree Frazier. Coming up, a new report shows how much coal is contaminating Mississippi groundwater. We'll talk about it next. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Get your questions ready. The next in legal terms, we'll be discussing basic estate planning. We invite questions about probate, conservatorship, and how to avoid all of that. If you have a question now, email us at legalterms at mpbonline.org. Otherwise, give us a call today at 10 a.m. for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio and on the Internet at mpbonline.org. Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Support for MPB comes... A new report on toxic coal ash pollution shows groundwater contamination at four Mississippi sites. The R.D. Morrow Senior Generating Station site in Purvis ranks ninth worst in the U.S. for coal contamination. That's according to a study by the Environmental Integrity Project and Earth Justice. The three other sites are in Ackerman, Gulfport, and Escotapa. Lisa Evans is with Earth, Earth Justice and spoke with MPB's Jasmine Ellis. We looked at the groundwater data supplied by industry of 265 coal plants in 39 states and Puerto Rico, and the results were dramatic. Um, This is the first time anybody um, has had access to this data. This data, again, was generated by the industry itself, and the conclusion was, is that 91% of the plants have contaminated their groundwater to an unsafe level. How severe is this problem? It is very severe, and what this means is that most of the plants have contaminated the water with unsafe levels of arsenic, a potent carcinogen, and neurotoxin. Um, They have also contaminated, uh, 60% have contaminated the water with lithium, and the majority of the groundwater is contaminated with four or more toxic chemicals. And again, this was 91% of those plants that have submitted data to EPA pursuant to a 2015 federal rule. You mentioned that there are different chemicals now that are in the water. How, how does that impact someone's health? 
it would impact someone's health very dramatically if that person were to drink the water. So when you have arsenic, um, and at times it's 300 times uh, the safe level, if you were to drink that, um, that would be potentially deadly uh, to your health. Um, Now, what we don't know from this study, we know the groundwater is contaminated. We don't know if anyone is actually drinking the groundwater. The federal coal ash rule does not require that industry test drinking water wells near their plants, so the quality of the drinking water is unknown. But what we do know is that as a resource at these plants, the groundwater is damaged, and we also know that groundwater by its nature never stands still, and this contamination is moving off-site, perhaps to a stream, perhaps to a lake, where it may not impact directly human health, but it may impact uh, the aquatic life, the fish in that stream. It might uh, ruin water for agricultural purposes. Um, it's never a good idea to uh, destroy the quality of, of groundwater, which is an irreplaceable resource. What do people need to know about this? Should they be concerned about the water that they're drinking? Should they not drink tap water? What exactly, how should people living around these plants go about conducting how they drink water? People in rural communities or people living next to these plants um, should have their water tested. Um, That often is an expensive proposition. So they should pressure their um, local public health department with their concerns. They could pressure the industry that created the pollution in the first place to test their public wells. Um, What we have here is a real gap in regulatory authority. In most states, the state does not require testing of private well water, um, and certainly EPA has not been providing that testing for these communities. But now that people know that they live next to a plant that has contaminated groundwater above safe health levels, um, they need to make some noise and they need to ask that their water be tested um, and to get those results in order to keep their families safe. How did Mississippi get on this list? We wanted to make some sort of list that highlighted the most contaminated sites. So with the amount of contaminants that were found at the Morrow Uh, groundwater, the groundwater around uh, the Morrow Generating Station, um, it rose to the level of being one of the 10 most contaminated sites. Um, Some of the causes for that are the arsenic content, um, the lithium content, which was 193 times the safe level, the content of molybdenum, which was 171 times the safe level. So you can see that there are some levels there that are... um, uh, grossly uh, above what EPA considers a safe level in drinking water. So what is the solution to this issue? What can be done to make sure that the public is protected as well as the environment from coal ash pollution? That's a great question, and there's a lot that can be done. I mean, this is a crisis, but there are solutions. So the first thing that has to happen is that EPA has to... Um, focus on the protection of human health and the environment and not protecting uh, the coal industry and the utility industry. What we need is a strengthening of those standards. One is the requirement that drinking water be tested and that local surface water be tested. 
Secondly, plants are often near communities that are low income, uh, that are communities of color, that may not have the ability uh, to do the research on their own to test the wells. And so EPA or the state has to um, pay particular attention to those communities and assist them. Lisa Evans of Earth Justice with MPB's Jasmine Ellis. The Mississippi Department of Environmental Quality says they haven't had a chance to thoroughly research the report's findings and compare them to the data they already have on file. Coming up, find out why the IRS is warning Mississippians to beware of scammers. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. This week's story Corps, James Harris shares a harrowing story of an African-American family and three white assailants on a 1950s Mississippi plantation. The three men came to the Harris home and unsuccessfully tried to sexually assault Harris's mother. The men were jailed but escaped. And that's where our story begins. They came back to our house and this time they decided that they wanted to hurt someone. So they broke into the house. My father was trying to get to the kitchen because he had an old shotgun or rifle in the kitchen. He was trying to get to the kitchen, but he was shot in the back before he could make it. And he was paralyzed for the rest of his life from that. And according to my mother, there was only one man who did all the shooting. The other two people did not kill anyone. And he had set it up so that the two younger guys were posted one in the front yard, one in the backyard, to keep everybody inside so that he could do all the killing inside. I don't know which child was shot first. My mother says that she remembers going to the back door and that the two little girls, my two sisters, one was four, the other one was eight. They were hanging on to her nightgown, and she went to the back door, and the man in the backyard said, if you don't go back inside, I'm going to shoot you. And he fired into the air. That frightened my mother, and she went back inside. She said that from that point, she doesn't remember when she lost the girls. She says she doesn't remember what happened to them from that point on. But she went back inside, and when she went back, she saw the man shoot my 12-year-old brother and saw him fall against the fireplace. And she decided to try the front door. She went to the front door, and the man in the front yard said, if you don't go back inside, I'm going to shoot you. She had just seen her 12-year-old son shot inside, and she decided that if I go back inside, I'm going to get shot there too. And she was able to reach up, grab the gun, and push it aside. The man who was outside was not a killer. He allowed her to escape with me in her arms. She says that as she was running away, she looked back and she saw them forcing my 14-year-old sister from underneath the house where she was hiding. She saw them forcing her to come out, and she said that it was one of the worst feelings she ever had because here she is running away with her baby, but she's seeing that her daughter is, is in imminent danger. She said she just had to make the decision to keep going. So she fled to another home of another tenant farmer on the plantation. 
My sister, the 14-year-old, was shot, and she was shot twice. Left for dead, but she survived. It was daylight before anybody came down to see what was going on. She said that my sister told her that when she came to, she went inside the house. She was dazed, of course, and my father was still alive. He was paralyzed, but he was still alive. But she went inside and she saw my brother and the other sister, and one sister had been killed, as she thought they were killed. But the four-year-old was still alive when she went in the house. And she told my mother that the four-year-old said to her, that man hit me in my stomach because she didn't realize, she didn't know what a shot was. She just knew she was hurt. She said, that man hit me in my stomach. She was found on her knees trying to climb into bed, the four-year-old was. They arrested them, and they had a trial. This is where this story is different from most of the stories that happened at that time in Mississippi. Usually when something like that happened to a black family or to a black person, nothing happened to the people who did it if they were white. But this was different. They were actually prosecuted. And not only were they prosecuted, but the prosecutor was seeking the death penalty for the man who did the killing. And his trial lasted a while. In the trial of Leon Turner, Leon Turner was the man who did the killing. His trial ended in conviction. The strategy of the prosecutor was to try him for the murder of the youngest child first. He was tried for the, the murder of the four-year-old. My mother says that they told her, the prosecutor told her, that they were going to try him for that one first, and if they weren't able to get a conviction on that one, that they wouldn't be able to get a conviction on any of them. I was told that in the 60s, we elected this governor named Ross Barnett, and he was, of course, one of the great segregationists of our state. I was told that Ross Barnett actually gave him a pardon and allowed him out and that when the owner of the plantation found out about it, he sent somebody to Jackson to tell the governor, if you do not put him back in prison, I have several armed men on my plantation, and when we see him, we are going to kill him on sight. So he went back to prison and never came back. To hear more of our conversations from the StoryCorps mobile tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps Mobile Tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education with 100% online master's or specialist degrees in fields like teaching, leadership, higher education, and more. More information at rebelteacher.com. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippians should be on alert for fake phone calls, emails, and websites attempting to steal information this tax season. That's according to the Internal Revenue Service. Clay Sanford with the IRS tells our Jasmine Ellis they only contact people by mail. We always see an uptick of scams during tax season. Uh, you know, the regular ones like the telephone scams and also the email what we call phishing scams. And uh, I think that the crooks realize that uh, 
you know, folks have tax returns on their minds and refunds this time of year, and they seize that opportunity to uh, try and steal things like personal information, financial information, and uh, things like that. What exactly are phishing scams? Phishing scams is where you would get a fraudulent email, and they're looking to uh, to get personal information about you. Uh, say, for example, you might get an email in your inbox that purports to be from the IRS, but the fact of the matter is that we do not send unsolicited emails to taxpayers. Uh, if you have a problem with your tax account, uh, say, for instance, if you filed a paper return and you forgot to sign it, that would generate a mailed notice. So what we do is contact taxpayers by mail and not by uh, unsolicited emails. What are some signs that something might be a scam? Well, if you get a telephone call from someone uh, claiming to be an IRS agent and you don't have a problem with your taxes or you don't think you have a problem with your taxes. And especially if the people become belligerent, threaten arrest, uh, ask for financial information over the phone, those are things that the real IRS won't do. And uh, now I want to you know, caveat that with the fact that it's, it's not impossible to get a phone call from the IRS. However, like I said before, if there is a problem with your account, if you owe a debt, you're going to be getting a mailed letter or a mailed notice and, and you know a hard copy in the regular US mail before you would uh, get a phone call. We've seen a lot of these scam calls of uh, being you know very belligerent, threatening arrest, uh, things like that. And, and that's a telltale sign right there. You said that criminals might also try to contact people via email. What would those emails say? Well, the emails can look very authentic. Over the years, the scammers have gotten uh, uh, very good at you know copying things like font styles from our website, copying the, the IRS logo, using that illegally, uh, I might add. And so they've gotten really good at, at making these emails look very authentic. So that's that's very dangerous, and everyone needs to know that the IRS does not send unsolicited emails. We do not ever send an email about personal tax information. We, we just do not use email for that reason. How can people keep themselves safe from having their personal, personal information stolen from them? So you want to do things like avoid unprotected Wi-Fi spots. Um, these hotspots may allow thieves to, to view transactions. Um, and uh, you, like we've already talked about, you want to learn to recognize and avoid phishing emails because these emails not only ask you know for financial information, they may ask you for things like your uh, Wi-Fi password, things like that, things that they could try to look in on you and see what you're doing. So you want to be very aware of things like that. And use passwords that are strong and unique on all of your accounts. Make sure that your computer is, is secure. And it's not a bad idea to use an antivirus program. So say someone does, has, does have their information stolen. What should they do if that information winds up in the wrong hands? When it comes to a tax return, uh, if you get a notice in the mail or if you believe that someone has filed a return uh, using your name and personal information, then what you need to do is contact the IRS as soon as possible. And if, uh, if it involves a refund, we will work to get that refund back to the individual. The time that it takes to do that can vary depending uh, on the um, 
the taxpayer's uh, return, account information, things like that. Everybody's tax return is different. Clay Sanford is with the Internal Revenue Service. Clay, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Okay, Jasmine. Thanks very much. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Money Talks. Then at 10, in legal terms. And at 11, stay tuned for Relatively Speaking from Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show today, find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online by visiting mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. Or you can subscribe to Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcast podcasting app. Join us tomorrow at 8.30 for Mississippi Edition. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education with 100% online master's or specialist degrees in fields like teaching, leadership, higher education, and more. More information at rebelteacher.com.